The following is a CJBT Productions podcast. This is the Music History Today Highlights Podcast number three. This week, we discussed putting Outkast into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We put Faithless into the EDM Hall of Fame. And we did the Top Singles and Award Show podcasts. This podcast gives you the highlights from all of the podcasts on this network that came out this past week. Let's start with the Music History Today, the weekly edition, which drops every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. On that podcast, we usually go over the music news of the week, do album reviews, talk about who should be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and go over the music charts of the week along with a bunch of other things. On the free version of the podcast, though, we only talk about the news, the charts, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame segments. You can find the full versions of the podcast with all the other stuff on Patreon and OnlyFans, which are going to be in the show notes here. Here is a clip from the free version of the podcast. This week, we're going to make the case for putting Albert Collins into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I would say my usual to the tail of the tape we go. However, Albert wasn't actually that kind of an artist because, well, he was a blues artist. Albert put out 10 studio albums and 20 live albums. Some of them did okay as far as blues albums went. Now, see, Albert's main strengths were in being a guitar-style innovator. Albert used a capo, which is placed on the guitar neck and raises the pitch. He also tuned his guitar differently and was known for his powerful playing style. He was also known as the master of the Telecaster, due to the Fender Telecaster being his guitar of choice. Robert Cray was influenced by him so much that the two of them put out an album together. Stevie Ray and Jimmy Vaughn were also influenced by Albert. Those credentials alone should make him eligible for the hall in most of the categories you would think, including early influencer, and yet Albert isn't in. It is high time that the hall voters saw the error of their ways and inducted the master of the Telecaster, blues great Albert Collins, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The full version of the podcast with the topic segment, the EDM Hall segment and reviews, can be found on my Patreon and OnlyFans pages. 
We'll discuss those pages later on in this podcast. Last week's topic was the history of the Record of the Year Grammy. Next week's topic will be the history of the Album of the Year Grammy. Tuesday's podcasts are always the EDM podcast, where we go over the EDM news and charts and induct someone into our EDM Hall of Fame. It also drops at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time every Tuesday. This past week on the free version, we inducted Faithless into our EDM Hall of Fame. Here is that particular segment. Let's start off our Hall of Fame in 2021 on the right track with the group that's given us a bit of insomnia, hint, hint, Faithless. The group started in 1995. They originally started out as five members, with Jamie Caddo leaving in 1999 and Aubrey Nunn leaving in 2006. The main faces of the group until 2011, when they broke up for the first time, were Sister Bliss and Maxi Jazz, with Rolo doing production along with playing keyboards and other instruments. When the group got back together, it became just Sister Bliss and Rolo as Maxi Jazz went off to do his own thing. Faithless has put out seven studio albums. Of those, five hit the UK Top 10, with two hitting the Top 10 on the US Dance Chart. They've released six remix albums, with Faithless 2.0 hitting number one in the UK. They've released 28 singles, with eight of them hitting the top 10 on the U.S. dance chart. Of those eight, four hit number one. Salva Mea, the club classics Insomnia, I can't get no sleep, and God is a DJ, and Insomnia 2.0. All four of these songs were worldwide smash hits that still get played today and will each eventually go into our Hall of Fame on their own. Faithless has been influential in trip-hop, house, and trance for 25 years now, and it is high time that they went into our hall. Faithless, inducted into our EDM Hall of Fame. This week on the full version of the podcast, our topic was the extremely brief history of the Best Disco Song Grammy. Next week, it'll be the history of the Best Mixed Dance Recording Grammy. Then, every day we do a short podcast called Music History Today for free, where we go over the music events that happened that day in music history, along with some of the birthdays of musical artists. This past week's birthdays included Elvis Presley and David Bowie and R. Kelly on January 8th, Dave Matthews, Jimmy Page, Joan Baez, and Sean Paul on January 9th, Pat Benatar, Donald Fagan, Rod Stewart, and Jim Croce on January 10th, Mary J. Blige on January 11th, Zayn Malik on January 12th, Suggs of Madness on January 13th, Dave Grohl and LL Cool J on January 14th, and Pitbull on January 15th. Now to the paid podcasts. 
I have started a Patreon page where I have a couple of tiers at the moment. Tier 1 gives you all of those free podcasts along with the full versions of the Music History Today Weekly Edition podcast and the EDM podcast along with a minimum of four extra podcasts per month. Those podcasts on that tier are the Top Albums Podcast, the Top Singles Podcast, the Top Dance Songs Podcast, and the Music Halls of Fame Podcast, which used to be free but is now a monthly podcast. In fact, each of those particular podcasts that I just mentioned are one episode per month each. That tier costs $5 per month. There may also be another podcast added for that tier. It depends on the month, but those four podcasts are guaranteed each month. And here is a little taste of one of the podcasts that you'll get in that tier this month. A few years ago, Billboard magazine put out its list of the biggest dance artists of all time. It was based on chart performance on its Dance Club Play chart, which started actually back in 1976. This is not an EDM chart, although a few EDM DJs made the list. EDM gets its own chart list on Billboard, although Billboard still has not broken them down to a best of all time, at least not at this point. The second it does guarantee you it will make this podcast. Therefore, this list is going to have some artists on it who you would not associate with a top 100 of all time list, starting with this artist at number 100. Solange has been known for the longest time as Beyonce's little sister and also for being the one who tried to beat up Jay-Z in that elevator in the Standard Hotel in New York City way back when. When you look at her body of work, though, the woman's actually been around a while. Her first album was Solo Star in 2002. She followed that up with Soul Angel and the Hadley Street Dreams. She had an EP in 2012 called True, was on the St. Huron compilation album in 2013, followed that up with the smash Grammy-nominated album, A Seat at the Table, and her last album, When I Get Home, made at least 17 Best Albums of 2019 lists. She's not known as a hit machine on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. Her single Cranes in the Sky is the only one to hit that chart, and it peaked at number 74. However, she's done extremely well on the club play chart. In 2008, she had two singles hit number one on the club play chart, I Decided and Sandcastle Disco. In 2009... Four of her songs went top ten on the dance chart. T-O-N-Y, or Tony, went number one. Would Have Been the One was number three. Fuck the Industry was number six. And I Told You So was number five. Her album, A Seat at the Table, had five songs that charted well on Billboard's R&B chart, but not on the dance chart. And her last album, When I Get Home was a complete masterpiece, 
but not so much on the dance chart either. Solange, Billboard Magazine's number 100 dance club play artist of all time. For Tier 2, you will get all of the free podcasts along with all of the paid podcasts on Tier 1, along with a minimum of an additional five podcasts per month. That tier is $10 per month. The additional podcasts on that tier are the Top Dance Songs by Decade podcast, the Award Show History podcast, the Music and Concert Venues podcast, and the Music's WTF Moments podcast. That podcast is where we take the controversial, the sad, and the just shocking moments of music history and talk about them. Those podcasts each have one episode dropping each month. The Music History In-Depth podcast will also be on this tier. It used to be free. It will now be part of this podcast and will be a weekly podcast still, though. There may also be another podcast added for that tier as well. Much like Tier 1, it all depends on the month, but those five podcasts are guaranteed each month for Tier 2 only. And here's a little bit from one of the podcasts that you'll get in Tier 2 this month. This podcast is a celebration of concert venues. You know, those places you used to go to before the dark times. The clubs, the theaters, the stadiums. Each week, we'll pick a venue, give you some of its history, and pick out one or two things that happened there or people who played there. Let's start off in New York City, specifically at 253 West 125th Street on the north side of the street between Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard and Frederick Douglass Boulevard, the Apollo Theater. The Apollo Theater was built in the neoclassical revival architecture style by George Keister. Keister also designed the First Baptist Church in New York City as well. Construction for the 1,506 capacity theater started in 1913 and finished in 1914. There are a couple of things about the Apollo Theater that most people don't realize. The first is that while it is now known worldwide as the Mecca for African American entertainment, it actually started out as a whites-only theater, completely segregated. Also, its first name was not the Apollo Theater. It was named the Hertig and Siemens New Burlesque Theater when it first opened in 1914, named after original operators and producers Jules Hertig and Harry Seaman. The duo took out a 30-year lease on the property from Sidney Cohen, although they didn't actually last that long. They lasted until 1928 when risque burlesque operator Billy Minsky took over the building. Billy, unfortunately, didn't do a lot of upkeep to the theater. Plus, during Billy's tenure, soon-to-be governor, or mayor, I should say, Fiorella 
LaGuardia started a campaign to shut down burlesque shows, which he deemed immoral. So, in the early 1930s, the theater was shut down. A new era dawned for the theater, though, when owner Sidney Cohen decided to reopen the theater and control it for himself. Under Sidney's tenure, things changed. First, Sidney completely renovated the theater. Second, he changed the name of the theater to the Apollo Theater. And third, and most importantly, he changed the attendance policy from whites only to catering to black audiences since the Harlem Renaissance had made Harlem into a predominantly African-American neighborhood by then. On January 26, 1934, the newly named Apollo Theater with new manager Morris Sussman reopened. The show that first night was Jazz a la Carte with Benny Carter and his orchestra, Ralph Cooper and Aida Ward. Within a month, They had a major star of the day performing as Broadway star and singer Adelaide Hall did a limited run of the show Chocolate Soldiers. A major problem at the time was that there was a lot of competition in the immediate area with clubs like the Lafayette, which was run by Frank Schiffman, and the Harlem Opera House, which was run by Leo Brecher. Cohen was going to get talent booker John Hammond to help bring in big names like the other clubs were getting, but unfortunately, Sidney Cohen passed away before that deal could go through. Eventually, the theater merged with the Harlem Opera House and were then run by both Brecher and Schiffman, who had both bought the Apollo. The Opera House ended up becoming a movie theater as movies were becoming very popular and profitable by that point. And the Apollo became their main theater, which shows that started off as mainly vaudeville shows with a line of now famous chorus girls. There was even a documentary on the chorus line released in 2005 called Been Rich All My Life. The Apollo earned its reputation through two things. The first was by holding an amateur night, which we'll talk about later. The second was by the big-named acts who either played there or got their start there. It started in the swing era, when Count Basie, Duke Ellington, and many other jazz bands played there. They also had later jazz acts like Dizzy Gillespie and Anita O'Day. It wasn't just jazz music that the Apollo became famous for, though. There were gospel acts like Mahalia Jackson, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Clara Ward, and Sam Cooke when he was with the gospel group The Soul Stirrers. As the decades went on, the Apollo also brought in R&B and soul acts like Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, Ray Charles, Gladys Knight, The Jackson Five, James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Benny King, Sarah Vaughn, and many, many, many more. They also showcased dancers like the Nicholas Brothers, the Barry Brothers, and Bill Robinson. The Apollo also had comedians Bill Cosby, Red Fox, LaWanda Page, Richard Pryor, and more. And they also reached back to their original vaudeville era, 
and had Moms Mabley, Johnny Lee, Stephen Fetchett, and Tim Moore. The Apollo had a strong run from the mid-1930s through the 1960s. Then the neighborhood crime, drugs, and gangs that began to get a foothold in Harlem encroached onto the Apollo. The theater closed down for a time in the mid-1970s when an 18-year-old was shot and killed in front of the, of the theater. By then, the theater was no longer owned by Schiffman, Brecher, or their families. In 1975, the theater was bought by Guy Fisher, who reopened it in 1976. Guy owned the theater until 1982 when he sold it to Inner City Broadcasting. Inner City applied for and won the building designation as a New York City landmark on June 28, 1983, and was also designated as a State Historic Landmark on November 17, 1983. There was also a recording and television studio put into the theater. In 1991, the state of New York bought the building and created the Apollo Theater Foundation nonprofit to run it. The building and marquee were renovated during the first decade of this century, and the foundation has been running the historic theater ever since. The theater also has as its main theme song a song called I May Be Wrong, But I Think You're Wonderful, which was written by Harry Sullivan and Harry Ruskin in 1929 and is one of the few theaters to have its own theme song. Remember, you get a minimum of 42 podcasts on Tier 1 and 50 podcasts on Tier 2. Plus, I may add another tier or two down the road. I also have an OnlyFans page that is $10 per month that has all of the offerings that you find in the Tier 2 package on Patreon for those of you who don't like dealing with Patreon. If you like what I do and the value that it brings and you want more, then please consider supporting my pages. And that is it for this week's edition of the Music History Today Highlights Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more music podcasts, check us out on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, etc., etc., and also on OnlyFans and Patreon, all under Music History Today. Thanks for listening. Audio engineering and editing, video editing, writing, narration, catering, basically everything is done by yours truly. You can find us on our website at cjbtproductions.com. Our podcast is on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, etc., etc., Look for them all under Music History Today when you search for us there. If you would like to support this podcast, our paid OnlyFans can be found at OnlyFans.com backslash Music History Today, and our Patreon can be found at Patreon.com backslash Music History Today. 
We are also on Twitter at Music History Day. And you can find us on YouTube and Spotify. Just search for us under Music History Today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.